bad about my boss so take a break from work today is no total loss Welcome to this butt-cold edition of the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks Podcast and Blast. I am your host, Chris Hull, a communications specialist out of Pier. And today on this below zero morning, I've got uh, a buddy of mine who is a law enforcement specialist out of Rapid City, uh, Officer Joe Keaton. Joe, how are we doing today, man? I'm doing great. And you're right about the cold, Chris. Yeah, you got that big beard still to keep you warm? Yeah, it it doesn't even help no, it when it's this cold. freezes and gets gross. Um, I'm actually <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of trying to grow mine back, and mine turns red, and my wife hates it. So even though it helps me cover up my face and be more handsome, she uh, absolutely hates it. So um, I'm betting that this weekend it's probably going to have to be shaved again. So. Yeah. I got the thumbs up from Shelby, so right. I'm going to keep mine. She, she's pretty understanding. So, um, yeah. Hey, that uh, that intro music is that from your band? Uh, it was from a band that I was in briefly. You know how there's like the fifth Beatle. I would be yes. like the sixth or seventh member of a band called Bus Nine. A bunch of guys from Britain, South Dakota. Shout out to them for letting me use their music, and that's a good catch, by the way. Um, they were out of Marshall, Minnesota, and uh, they're, but they're all from Britain. They all went to school, or most of them went to school in Marshall. Um, kind of got connected with them. Buddies, you know, didn't like each other in high school. Kind of got to be buddies, uh, similar musical tastes and stuff. Um, and they they played a lot of cover band music when I was playing with them, and then they kind of transitioned and started writing their own music, and had a pretty cool run in Minnesota for a few years and they still have a big you know a fairly decent cult following but yeah it's bus nine and uh the reason it's bus nine is they all went to school on bus number nine in britain so yeah good <laughs> that's question. cool good ask but yeah shout out to uh uh jer and larry and craig and the boys for letting me use that music when i started this i was like i need music and I dug out my old cds and and uh and uh asked them if i could use it and they were gracious enough to let me use it so yeah, it's uh, it's interesting when you and I were working on putting that tips video together for right. the tips trailers. I guess I didn't realize how difficult it was to find music. It is. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can use royalty-free, but they still make you pay for it. And, and uh, people with budgets like mine, you got to scrimp and save and borrow and beg. And, and uh, you can't steal because you put it up online, they'll uh, they'll shut you down. So. Yeah, and, and podcasts they also do the same thing. So, so law enforcement specialist—that's a big, big title, uh, pretty heavy title. Um, conservation officer, but what? Let, first, before we get into that, where where are you from, Joe? Um, you know, I was born in Fargo, North Dakota. My folks actually lived in Moorhead, Minnesota, and I was born in February, so it probably felt like this right. up there and and they uh drove across the the bridge up there and then i was hatched my folks are both from wessington springs south dakota where the majority of my family's from and then my 
my dad moved out to Sturgis when I was about four years old, and so I I call Sturgis my home. That's kind of where I grew up. Right on. You got uh, you're in Rapid City. You got wife, family, dogs. What you got? Yeah, I've got uh, my wife Shelby. Uh, she's a dentist at the VA at Fort Meade. She actually worked on my is... dad's teeth and gave him a hard time when she was doing it one time. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, no, but, yeah, it's kind of a special place in our hearts. I'm a veteran. My dad's a veteran. My grandfather is a veteran, World War II veteran. Right and so I just I think it's really, really neat that she gets to to work on those guys. Right. So. Uh, and I've got two boys. I've got an 11-year-old, Charlie, and I've got a 5-year-old, Eddie. Right um, I just uh, lost my favorite hunting dog back in September. And, uh, yeah, she's a Weimariner. Right so, I don't know. It's it's funny how attached you get to those dogs. For sure. And, uh, yeah, so this year I haven't shot a bird and i told my wife that i i didn't want another dog you know there's just something about walking your best friend into the vet for its last trip you know when they look at you and they're still so loyal yep. and they're like okay i'm coming with you Ugh, right. crushed me yeah it's it's uh, you know and i have four currently right now three labs and a little mini golden doodle and i've had labs my whole life and i've had to do it i just did it a couple years ago with probably the best dog i'll ever have and then two months later my dad's old lab was living with us and i had to do it with her and yeah it's hard to be a good human man because those things will do anything for you yeah for sure to to know okay we can't do this anymore but you know they're their brain is willing and their their heart is willing, but the body is failing them. And man, it's uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. So it's tough stuff. Um, also, I have a 12 year old daughter named Charlie. So your 11 year old boy named Charlie better stay away from my. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't there another one too? Doesn't uh, isn't Simpson? Yes, Charlie. So you have a Charlie. Simpson. Yes, he does, and he's yeah. a year older than my daughter, and and we've conspired to because they're. You know, it's like at least I know where you're, where you live, and you know where I live, so we can chase him down and, and uh, <laughs> put the fear of God into him anyway. But, yeah. Uh, hopefully, got a couple more years before we got to worry about that a little. Bit. Yeah, that's funny. Joey, talk. Yeah, about so we were only dogless for a little while, and and now we've got two dogs. Oh. We got Fr- Frank and Beans. Frank is a <laughs> French bulldog, and Beans is a Aussie Doodle. Right on. And uh, yeah. They are buddies. That's awesome. Frank and Beans, well done on the names. Mm-hmm. Strong dog names. Joe, you talked about being a veteran, and let's talk about that. You were in the Coast Guard, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's... being from Fargo and then Westington Springs and then Sturgis, uh, how how did you choose the Coast Guard and why? Well, I, you know, I think I always wanted to follow in the footsteps uh, of my father and my grandfather. Um, They were both in the Army, and I just wanted to do something a little bit different. And, you know, one one thing that I had going for me in high school, a lot of my friends 
had no idea what they wanted to do when they grew up. And mm -hmm. one thing I had going for me is I knew that I wanted to be a game warden. And uh, when I started looking at the military, um, some of the things that the Coast Guard does is very similar to uh, what a game warden would do. I mean, right. you know that South Dakota Game Fishing Parks, we handle the majority of the, the boating law enforcement across the state and the boating safety stuff around the state. And uh, we're involved with the search and rescue right. and and some of the recovery operations. And so when I started thinking about that, um, it just clicked and I hadn't known anybody that had been in the Coast Guard and I just jumped in. So, you know, and, and some of the younger listeners out there won't get this, but, you know, back in the day, you'd go to any mall. Their malls were quite viable back then, and that's where you went to hang out. Um, go to any mall, and there was a recruiting station. In fact, I think the one in Pierre just left maybe a year ago. You know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, you could go, and, and, and National Guard, and you could go to a recruiting station and talk to them and sign up where's the nearest Coast Guard or like, how did that process? You just, did you dial 1-800-COAST-GUARD and sign up? Or? <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of funny because I was talking to my mom about it and I told her I, I thought that's what I wanted to do. And she jumped on it because she couldn't wait to get me out of the house. <laughs> and uh, she worked for the high school as a secretary for the counseling office and a lot of times the counseling office will handle all that stuff and right. figure some things out for the kids and what they want to do in the future. And and uh, so my mom reached out to the Coast Guard recruiter, which was down in Omaha, Nebraska at that time. And he came up and we had lunch and and the rest is history. I signed the papers and yeah, it's it's a it's a sobering experience. Um, when you jump on that bus and everybody's really friendly to you at first to get you on the bus, right, right. but when you hop off the bus, the friendliness kind of ends. Right. So. Where, and I know you're rolling your eyes because I'm asking about this, but you're the only person I know that's ever been in the Coast Guard. So where'd you have to go to training? And, and the other question is, you know, Coast Guard is, is an official branch of the military, correct? The U.S. military? Yeah, it is. Okay. So, so that the song, um, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, like the old song, Coast Guard just gets left off. Most of the time, yeah. And, and all those other branches will make fun of me. Right. E even even though the Navy's a bunch of booger eaters. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. But they will tell you that that somebody in the Coast Guard can't drown. Because if they fall off the boat, they can just stand up. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's not bad. I know. I know it takes you. That takes it personal. Where, where, so where was your training? Where is the Coast Guard training base or whatever? So I went to boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey. It's a just a beautiful, quaint city on the East Coast, and um, I did a lot of push-ups <laughs> on the sand beach there, looking at the waves coming in. Um, but yeah, that lasted eight weeks. And after that, uh, you know, you kind of, you choose somewhat what duty station you'd like to, to be at. Sure. And I think I got my second 
or third choice, which ended up being in the Great Lakes. Sure. So I was up in Michigan and spent most of my time uh, up on Lake Huron. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was just a neat experience. I mean, you think of Great Lakes, and it is a lake, and it's not the ocean, so how big can it be? But being from South Dakota, anytime you're on water <laughs> and you can't see shore anywhere, um, yeah, so it was, it was interesting, and I loved it. And, and another reason I went, you know, it was going to be my stepping stone into this conservation officer job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because it's the military, you get the GI Bill. And so they paid for my college. And so you really can't beat it to to have a job that you enjoy, that you're getting paid for. And then they pay for your school in the end. Right. What what were your day to day duties like on the Coast Guard and Lake Huron? Were you checking anglers or were you just checking boat safety? What? Um, so I was at a small boat station up there and we had a, a 41 foot utility boat and we had a 21 foot rigid hull inflatable boat. Um, and so those are the ones where they've got like a fiberglass hull, but they've got those, uh, air sponsons around them. Yep. Um, so, you know, about 50% of us, we would split up. It was almost like a, working at a fire station. So I worked two days on, two days off, alternating weekends. And so when you're there, you're there 24-7. Right. And so a lot of it is preventive maintenance. Um, I was an engineer, so I worked on like the boat motors and all that stuff. I was a boat crew member. Um, I was law enforcement certified. And so the the key to the Coast Guard and their motto is they're always ready. You know, Semper Paratus, always ready. And uh, so everything had to be ready to go uh, because if that SAR alarm went off, search and rescue, we call it SAR, uh, you had to be ready to drop everything and head out. And typically when we headed out, the conditions were the worst that they could be. Sure. And uh, so anytime somebody would get in trouble and they'd be calling Mayday or their boat was taken on water or somebody on the boat had a heart attack, I mean, you name it, uh, we would head out and, and find them and help them. Sure. Wow. So you weren't like driving a, like a, big giant cigarette boat chasing down drug runners or anything like that. See, that's what I was expecting. You, you know, sunglasses, suntan oil, you know. Yeah, it was boat. mainly, yeah, keeping the Canadians out of here. <laughs> so that's kind of the the blanket of security I provided. <laughs> there you go. And now, we, we, did a, we did a lot of boat enforcement inspections, similar to what we do here where sure. we're checking life jackets and making sure people are safe, uh, making sure people have sober operators. Uh, we were big on that. Right. Um, and in the wintertime, uh, that Coast Guard station, Saginaw River, is the busiest ice rescue Coast Guard station in the nation. I was 
just going to ask you about that. That was my next question this week. Uh, a bunch of ice anglers in Duluth on Lake Superior uh, had a big chunk of ice break free, and they drifted out not to sea, but it could just as well have been the sea because Lake Superior is giant and scary. And and uh, I saw that they had the Coast Guard was involved, and then uh, Minnesota DNR went, and, and there was a whole slug of them. I think there was 20-some anglers uh, that had to get saved off a big chunk of ice that that drifted away. So you had to, you were involved in stuff like that too, huh? Yeah. Yep. Consistently. And you know, where I was at on Lake Huron on Saginaw Bay, it was really strange that, um, the wind and the weather had a lot to do with what that ice was going to do. Right. I mean, sometimes it pushes together and you get these massive, uh, pressure ridge ice ridges that would be, you know, 30, 40 foot high. Um, but you know, where I was, if you got a strong Southwest wind, it would actually blow the ice apart. And so there would be numerous people, you know, fishing, they'd have their ATVs and their snowmobiles and there'd be a good 300 yards of open water in between the, the two pieces of ice. And we would cruise out there and, tell them what was going on and it was always just puzzling and surprising to me that um, usually their first question was will you bring our ATV back with me and we're like yeah we can't do that and then they just say yeah we'll wait it out and sure enough I mean eventually you know sometimes we'd sit there all night we'd watch them in night vision make sure you know the ice stayed stable and Um, but sure enough, the, the wind would shift and that ice would blow back together. And it was just a race, just, right. you know, snowmobiles and ATVs just flying to get, get wow. across that crack. Wow. And like, uh, hover boats and stuff or hovercrafts or what were you using? Airboats? You know, at that, it, it's, it's funny. What we had was just a, just a aluminum skiff with a 9.9 johnson on it and so we would all have uh these dry suits on and uh so the coxswain the guy driving the boat he would be pushing the back of the boat and they they'd have two of us on both sides of the boat and we would just run that thing across the ice like an ice skate and then once we hit water we just all bail in the boat we cruise over and then we'd pop the boat up on the ice and we'd start pushing it again wow it's like the South Dakota bobsled team kind of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we did test out uh, some of those hovercrafts, but, you know, like weather like today, and you'd right. have a, a little chunk open water, but there'd be so much spray right. that would come off of those things and everything would ice up. It was just a little bit miserable. Wow. That's cool stuff. Huh. Yeah, I just I, that was my next question because I saw it just happen this week in Duluth and on on Superior. So, well, we all learned something. So now, uh, transferred in, got to Coast Guard. How long were you in the Coast Guard? Four years. Four years. I did my I did my four. I got I went in in '95, out in '99, and then headed back to South Dakota, and went to school at SDSU for a long eight years for a normal four year. Yeah. So you started with us in 03? 
Uh, yeah, full time started in 05. 05. But you know, one one thing I tell these kids that want to be conservation officers is, you know, once you're in college and going to school, make sure you do these seasonal and internship right. jobs that Game and Fish provides, because then you get to know the people, get your foot in the door. Um, there were a few of my friends in college that chose to work construction because it was a lot better money than what we were getting paid, but they just never got their foot in the door and, and never got hired and moved on to different things. Right. Oh, good timing too. Big push, by the way, cough, cough, little plug that, uh, we're doing a big reach out to, uh, especially college age kids. There's seasonal jobs we're looking for right now and internships we're looking for right now. So if you uh, if you're looking to get in the you know the proverbial foot in the door, um, you can reach out to me Chris Hull at state.sd.us and I can get you going in the right position. But yeah, those those seasonals and stuff are getting harder and the internships are getting harder and harder to fill, and it, it's pretty interesting. It's harder and harder to get those filled and and uh, it's not so much maybe on the wildlife side, but we got a bunch of fishery seasonal jobs that are open and then a ton of park seasonal open uh, jobs that are open and. And those, you know, those experiences and those relationships you make, they they help even if you're looking to get into a game warden job or whatever. I mean, you're meeting the same people, and so good good push there. Not even plan to uh, push the seasonals and internships. So good job. Um, yeah, you bet. So now, um, you're, now you're in Rapid, and you're yes. a law enforcement specialist. So let's just talk about what your normal day to day duties and stuff are. Okay. Well, there's there's two law enforcement specialized specialists employed by Game Fishing Parks. Um, I'm one of them. Bruce Noctegall is the other one, and we both have you know different things that we do, um, and basically different programs that we administer. And so, probably two main components of my job right now are the boating law administrator, and the other one would be the turn-in poachers coordinator. Okay. So do you get to get out in the field and stuff much anymore, Joe, or? I do. As needed? Yeah. Right on. Yeah, if I can uncross my eyes from staring at the computer and and get my stuff done. (laughs) Um, But a lot of the openers, um, like pheasant opener, West River deer and Black Hills deer, that's probably one of the busiest times out here west uh, because Black Hills deer will go the whole month of November, and then West River will do half the month, so you do have two seasons going on. Yeah, Um, a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, for sure. So, well, let's let's get briefly. I want to talk about tips, but uh, the turn and poster stuff, but... One of the reasons I thought to bring Joe on, and it was a couple of weeks ago when the, we had sketchy ice, and, and uh, you know my phone was was ringing off the hook, and our, our Facebook message boards and and everything, everybody's looking for good ice. Where's the good ice? Where's the good ice? And and there really wasn't any good ice. I was telling people, um, try to get across the Canadian border. Um, there might be some there because you know our counterparts in North Dakota were dealing with it, Minnesota they were dealing with it, had sketchy ice, and and. Joe and I were on a call, and, and we were talking about some duck hunting safety and, and ice safety. And, and 
and Joe brought up this this idea that when you fall through, there's something called like cold water immersion. So, Joe, um, and I and I know like even up up in your neck of the woods, you know, Pactola, you know, that big basin. There's still some sketchy ice there, and there's guys driving all over, guys and gals driving all over it and stuff. But there's still sketchy ice. So let's talk about you. You're out there, you break through, break through the ice, you fall through. Um, you know, other than the standard, you know, some of the safety precautions you need to take, um, you know, talk about the procedure of trying to get yourself out and, and what you need to do when you get into that cold water. Yeah, well, I guess to, to back up a little bit, Chris, I just, it, it's hard for me to ever say that there is such a thing as good ice. I mean, certainly there are times when we get weather like this that we're below zero and, and we're making ice like crazy. But it's just I've never felt like it's something that you can depend on. And I remember that even going back into my Coast Guard days where we trained constantly for ice rescue and walking across, uh, you know, there being a river system and then the big body of water but river systems are horrible mm -hmm. you know with with that constant current um those dam faces sometimes are no good because they'll have those seep wells coming out from underneath and so i just tell people you can never absolute depend on good ice right um but if you if you do find yourself in that situation which is can happen to anybody if you're going to venture out on ice um, you just have to tell yourself and prepare yourself for the worst because you're only going to be better off right so if if you do fall through the ice uh one one thing that was really interesting to me and and stuck with me as the boating law administrator i get to go to uh, these conferences around through NASVLA, which is the National Association of State Boating Law Administrators. So it's basically um, every person that has my job in each state, we all get together, right. talk about trends and all these different things. But um, the last one I was at, there was this really interesting guy that uh, he's a professor from London. And he studied cold water immersion so much. Like mo most of the things coming out of his mouth, I could hardly understand. But <clears throat> but one thing really stuck with me. And he said, if, if there was one thing that you could get across to people that would save lives, other than wearing a life jacket, but if there was one thing that you could tell people that would absolutely save lives, is that when you fall into cold water, that feeling is going to subside. So when you fall into cold water, and we consider cold water being anything under 70 degrees, but like right now, if you were to go outside and fall into cold water, it would be the worst day of your life. Right. I mean, because it's so painful. And I, I think what he was getting at is that if you can just fight through that initial shock and that initial gasp 
reflux because sometimes people will fall into cold water and it's just your human reaction to <gasps> to right. gasp and then you're sucking in water and and then it's game over but if you could fall in and you could just tell yourself okay i just have to get through this first minute you know one thing we call is a 1101 so you have one minute where you have that time to get your breath your breathing under control and once you accomplish that then you've got 10 minutes of useful movement you could still move around before your arms and legs your fingers don't work anymore right. uh, for self-rescue and then you have one hour before you become hypothermic and so i mean if, if you look at those times it's it's really a significant amount of time right. before you're hypothermic but first minute really important get everything under control and just know that this horrible feeling is going to go away and then use that other 10 minutes wisely right. and and i think that's what you were getting at fall in the ice how do you self-rescue right. and it one thing that i found it, it's kind of a a balancing act i don't know if you were a rock climber chris or rock star not a rock climber yeah yeah <laughs> well close um so i'm just trying to think of how how i could compare this maybe uh getting out of a pool you know so if you don't use a ladder at a pool uh in, instead of pushing yourself up like you would on on the wall of the pool and then putting your foot up and standing up instead of doing that you want to disperse your weight as well as you can typically if you fall in that means the ice obviously wasn't good where you fell in right. and probably isn't really good um real close to where you fell in right. yeah so if you can kind of kick your feet like you're swimming and just get your torso up on the ice and spread your arms out um and it, if you could get your torso all the way to your waist up there on the ice and just hold on at that time your weight's going to be mainly distributed towards the the top of that ice not a tremendous amount of weight on your legs and then you can start to roll and roll away right. and that's why some guys will carry those ice picks yep. with them around their neck and that's just a way to to have something to dig into the ice yep. uh, versus just using your hands to try to get up there. Yep. Yeah. So I, no, I've, I've been through uh, a couple times and always carry ice picks or something. But the one time I did go through and I, it wasn't terribly deep, um, but actually kind of used my wet arms. I put them up on the ice on a cold day and they literally froze enough to the ice where I could kind of, pull myself up but the kicking of the feet and like flattening out your body so you can get it more more uh like horizontal instead of vertical is a big thing because uh, you know i've talked to people who oh the ice picks are great but i'm not strong enough to pull myself up with my arms and it's like no you know when you swim you're using your legs more than your arms or just as much if not more so it's a good point yeah for sure i mean it's it's not really a climb it's more of a swim and, and using your legs as propulsion in the water 
you know, to, to push yourself onto that ice ledge and then hopefully be able to roll. Right. And, and once you're away from that spot, you know, trying to get, you know, obviously get away from that poor ice and, and get to a spot where you can kind of get up and then obviously get somewhere warm. But the, the cold water immersion thing, that 110 one really stuck with me, Joe, and, that, and I think that's a, a message that, that we need to push a little bit more. And, and the, you know, there is no real 100% sure ice. Um, those, are, those are important messages, and especially as we get along with, you know, get through this cold snap and then the ice starts going bad because everybody likes to fish that last ice, you know, when it's nice and the fish are biting right before spring, you know, right before spring ice out. Um, yeah. So, I, uh, I, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say too. Yeah, it's not just, it's not just ice fishing. It is that spring fishing, and and one thing that we've um, tragi- tragically noticed, you know, the last couple of years are waterfowl hunters. Um, and I mean, it's it's just completely different going out in a boat to waterfall hunt versus going out in the summertime and boating with your family. Right. I mean, the, the amount of equipment needed is completely opposite. I mean, really, you just need swimming trunks and a life jacket right. to go out in the summer. But if you're going to go out and you're going to hunt ducks or geese, uh, you've got your guns, you've got your ammo, you've got your dogs, you've got your buddy. Got your waders, got your decoys. All of that stuff, to me, in my mind, is weight. Right. So every every boat out there uh, has a capacity plate. Most boats, if 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 they're built after, I think it's 1972, they they have a capacity plate on there. And as soon as you go over that maximum capacity of weight, you're putting yourself serious risk of, of capsizing. And and I think that's some of the things that we've seen over the past couple of years is, you know, probably the contributing factor is overloaded. Overloaded and, and weather. Right. You know, so if you get weather that comes up and then you have waves, your boat's already too heavy. So your freeboard, the amount of boat sticking up above the water is lower than it should be. And it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to waves crashing over the side. It's vulnerable to if you're going in your boat at, you know, even 10 miles an hour, that could be the biggest wake that you're going to push. Right. And then all of a sudden you stop a boat. What happens, Chris? Yeah, the water that was behind you catches up to you. Right. And it ends up spilling over the transom. And it's it's game over for that boat. And so now you're in a situation that you didn't think you were going to be in, but hopefully you've prepared for it. Right. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, I got to make it through this first minute. And hopefully you have a life jacket on. I mean, they make a lot of cool camouflage life jackets, throwable devices, all that stuff. Um, you should wear it. Um, don't have your waves you know, on in the boat either. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so you just, just like I said with ice fishing, that 110 one, uh, then you have to figure out 
how you were going to survive the day. Right. Right. And uh, I think a lot of that can be preventative maintenance by, you know, looking at all the gear that you have and looking at the capacity of your boat and figuring out what's going to be the safest thing to do. Right. And it's like you said, it's a pretty easy thing to do. You know, most of these boats uh, have the, have the tag on there. Um, you know, if you need to get on a scale and, and weigh you and weigh your buddy and weigh your dog and weigh everything and go, okay, something's got to stay home. Um, you know, or, or you take two trips. Yeah, that's true. You know, you can, you can take your dog and your buddy, your buddy can be set decoys and you can go back and get the rest of this stuff. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, we're human beings, so we want to do things quick and efficiently. Right. And, yep. But famous last words, huh? Right. right. So let's talk just a little bit more about ice safety. This I'm going to spring this question on you, and then we'll get to some of the interesting tip stuff. So uh, I was a kid driving with my buddy on South Buffalo Lake uh, in the fog, you know, 30 inches of ice, uh, got lost, hit a heave pickup goes through we bail out my dog's in the back got to get the dog out grab the auger everything pickup goes through the bottom goes to the bottom 18 feet of water we were close to an island once we kind of figured out where we were uh and were able to fairly easily get the pickup out um there's all these rumors and people argue about it on online forums and stuff all the time vehicle goes to the bottom four-wheeler goes to the bottom uh do you have to get that vehicle out, one, and are there fines by the EPA or Game Fishing Parks for every day you have that vehicle in the bottom of the lake? Do you know those answers, Joe? You put me on the spot, totally on the spot, and I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. but I No, no, you're, <laughs> you're good. Um, we, well, yes, we want that stuff out of there. Yeah, obviously. But, but we, we want you to go about it in the safest manner possible. I mean, obviously, if your truck went through, we don't want to put another tow truck or something else out there to try to get things out. But anything that we can do um, to prevent harm to the environment, we'll try to do as quick as possible. Um, I don't know what DENR has for um, violations, so what they would charge for that. But I can't think of anything that we personally as conservation officers would charge for it. I know out here in the Black Hills, because it's National Forest, they do have um, some regulations on that. So if, if you dump something, you know, down to the bottom, they want you to get it out. And as long as you do it as safe as possible, I, I don't think that people need to be so stressed about getting it out of there. I think you should just be happy that you're alive and then and there are people out there that are really skilled at getting that stuff out for sure for sure well i'll probably ask dnr if we've got anything so uh and probably post that answer with uh when i post the post this episode let's get to tips turn in poachers big part of your job big part of like a lot of what we do really um turn in poachers program how long has that been around um you know i know you kind of oversee it and and how how's that program paid for uh so it's been around since 1984 uh it's the turn in 
poachers program where people can call in. Uh, we've got a 1-888-OVERBAG is the phone number. Uh, people can remain anonymous. They can give their name if they choose to. Uh, we always prefer people to give us a name because there could be some follow-up questions that we have. Um, but it, it's, it's a great program. I'm extremely passionate about it. And, you know, it started, you know, like I said, 1984, it started because there was not a means for us to get somebody a reward. So as an officer, if I received a call um, and it was valuable inf information that led to the arrest of an individual that committed a wildlife crime, there was nothing in state statute or administrative rule that would allow us to take money out of our general fund and give it to these people. And it makes sense. I mean, it, we actually work for a, a pretty unique agency. I think you'd agree, Chris, mm -hmm. that we're fun, funded uh, solely by, you know, fish and, and game licenses. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really pretty unique that um, those people out there taking part in, you know, angling and, and hunting are the ones that support the wildlife in South Dakota. Right. And similar to that, you know, the Turn in Poachers is a, is a nonprofit, and uh, the nonprofit is Wildlife Protection Incorporated. And the way that we're funded is all through donations. Right. So when you buy a license, you see those checkoffs at the bottom. Do you want a Sportsman's Against Hunger or tips or whatever? So all that funding, that all, all the tips program is ran by those donations. And donations you get throughout the year at certain events or whatever. Or yeah. Visuals, so. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's some other, like, nonprofits out there that will donate to us. As well, I know, um, kind of had a rash of raptor poachings here last year. And, uh, the Missouri Breaks Audubon Society, I know they gave us a, a nice donation. Cool. Um, another cool one is there was a, there was a kid that lived out there in Pier that passed away. A couple of years ago, was extremely passionate about hunting and fishing, and his parents donated his funeral fund, what was left over to the Turning Poachers program. Wow. Um, yeah, but it's the the way that we use those funds is to reward those that <laughs> report a crime, sure. a wildlife crime. And so I guess what I was saying, it was unique because, you know, typically it's, it's sportsmen that are donating to this. And so it's sportsmen paying other sportsmen to do the right thing. Right. Help protect those resources. What, um, how many calls does the tips line get in an average year, Joe? Um, it, it varies a little bit. Uh, this past year... Uh, we had 318 investigations, which led to 174 arrests. 
So out of that, we paid, let's see. So the violators paid $42,000 in fines, $48,000 in civil damages, and we paid $6,650 in rewards. Nice. And, and those, those um, you make a call in the tips, you can stay anonymous. Um, but even if you choose not to stay anonymous, um, is there some confidentiality there? Or, I mean, other than if you had to go to court, I guess, you know. That's say, a great. Say I knew somebody, and, and he might even be a, somebody I've, I've had a beer with. And I see him shooting out a window, and he kills a big buck. And I'm like, that's crap. You know, um, I make that call. Obviously, South Dakota is a small state, and Pierre's a small town. Um, how do you... How do you work around that? So that's a really, really good question. And I, I think it's important to know the difference between uh, an anonymous informant, which we would have no idea who it is, and a confidential informant, which we know who it is, but we're not going to give up um, their identity. Um, so anytime that, that you call the the tips hotline, if you leave your name and your phone number, you're no longer anonymous. Right. But if you want to remain confidential, uh, we'll do everything in our power to keep it that way. In fact, I've even told our officers before when, when they've been worried about this stuff, like, oh, I got this confidential informant called the tips hotline. I've got this great case. I, it's going to go to court, and I'm afraid that during the court process, they're going to ask us to divulge that person's name and how we got this information. And uh, at that point, it's more important to us and extremely important for the TIPS program just to drop that case. We'll just drop it, and then we keep We would never give somebody's name up sure. that, that doesn't want to be given up. Right on. Think of yourself as Huggy Bear on Starsky and Hutch, if you're old enough to remember that. I can't remember the yeah. Miami Vice informant that they always used, but Huggy Bear was on Starsky and Hutch, right? Yeah. <laughs> what our our informants usually aren't the yeah. the junkies, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, just thinking about this, Joe. Like uh, Minnesota does, like a Conservation Digest, and some of their most popular things are in the back of that every month or every two months, whenever that comes out, are a lot of the, the, like the cases that come from their tips hotline or cases that, that, you know, the CO is telling a story, game wardens telling a story about, you know, a guy hunting over a bait pile and they killed eight, eight bear and didn't have a license and stuff. We don't do that a whole lot. Why is it so difficult to share that stuff? Good question. Um, I'm really grilling you know, so, folks. So. Yeah. So, so we put things on the back of uh, the hunting handbooks, yeah. typically our, our biggest case of the year. And then we like to put uh, some of the stuff on our Turn in Poachers Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And we're just working now on revamping our Turn in Poachers website. And so the idea here in the future is we give a little snip of a case on Facebook, and if people want to read more about that specific right case, on. they could click over to our website and um, 
kind of get the full story. Right. Um, so the, the reason why it's difficult, I guess, for us to put some of this information out is, I guess there's a few different reasons. Uh, one is protection of informants. Uh, sometimes when we make cases uh, on these folks, they have no idea that somebody turned them in. Right. They just think that, that we caught them red-handed. And so if we were to put something up there on the on the TIPS Facebook page or something and, and then our violator saw it, they might say, somebody turned me in and, and start digging and, and – you know, we just want to we want to protect our informants. Right. Um, sometimes it appears like, you know, we're we're not getting the latest and greatest cases that that you guys have been working on, and a reason for that is time. I mean, some of these cases uh, that we work will take years to complete, and we really can't say anything about it until it's right. gone through the court process and been adjudicated. And so you may see a case pop up tomorrow that says, well, this happened in 2018. Well, it's because it took that long sure. for this thing to go through. Um, another thing, I guess for me, and, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but uh, it could be some embarrassment. Um, some of our, Wildlife crimes, I mean, we work really hard. Our officers work hard on um, putting something together. And once it goes to the state's attorney's office, um, that specific state's attorney may not think it's a, a good case and just charge them with court costs and call it good. Just kick it down the road. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't want to put something out there that, uh, you know, we were looking for information. Somebody called in with great information. We made the case, and then it just kind of right. got poo-pooed away. Right. Um, another reason, it could be young kids, juveniles. Right. And so if it's, yeah, and and that does happen, probably more commonly than, than people think, especially thrill killing, which is one of the hardest poaching cases to make because nothing is tied to that individual. Right. So if you get a group of kids that are just out cruising at night and shooting deer and leaving them lay, not taking a head, uh, the bullets are passed through so you don't have a bullet, nothing connects that person sure. to, to that deer versus, you know, like there was a really big case um, down the southeast last year where they had 45 deer illegally taken by one guy. And he was just going out shooting them. Um, his friend would drop him off. He'd sit there in the pitch dark and cut the head off. The friend would swing back by. He'd jump in and they'd take off. Wow. So when they, and we did get a tip on that one. Once we figured out who it was, they did the search for it. They found 45 deer that this guy had killed. Oh, nice God. bucks too. So uh, in a case like that, there's something to connect them to, right? Because right. our officers have been out in the field. We see this headless deer, figure it's been shot, and take a DNA sample. You do your search warrant. You take a DNA sample of the antlers that you find. A lot of times you can get them to match up. Sure. Um, 
let's let's talk about a couple right. of, a couple of other interesting cases maybe Joe that you can talk about you know because I will say I'll put this out there the tips Facebook page um, when when we share those Facebook posts and stuff of cases man they get you know if we're looking for information or whatever man we get so much engagement and those things get shared across the state and they go into hunting messaging boards and it's you know to a T it's man that you know those those guys suck or that gal sucks or whoever it is you suck because you're taking resources away from everybody else so follow that tips Facebook page that's cool stuff and, and uh, go to the website it's there's some interesting stuff on there how did information ever get across to people before Facebook I, I, I think um, it's that goes at hand with why you don't see very many like coffee shops in in bigger towns anymore. <laughs> I think it used to be the coffee shops, and now everybody's got Facebook. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing it, um, the the engagement that those get. I mean, we've had some that have had you know thousands of comments and have reached one hundred and fifty thousand people. You know, you start thinking about that, and that's pretty amazing. But like, yeah, let's talk about maybe one more case. You know, that you could share that that maybe caught the eye or you know, but resulted in a in a good tips case. Um, one that I'll talk about because it was one that, uh, myself and, uh, Jeff Edwards, which is the conservation officer in Hill City worked on, um, was a case that happened here near Rapid City. And, uh, we started working on that as a mountain lion case. And we got information that, that this guy was, shooting deer down on this piece of property, leaving them lay, and then hunting over that dead deer to shoot a lion. Right. And so we went down there. We we did find that, um, I guess it's a good thing, he wasn't shooting deer and leaving them lay, but he was picking up road kills, which is illegal to do, and, and you can't hunt mountain lions over bait. Right. And so once we got into that piece of property and, and it was snowy. We could see ATV tracks coming down. We could see a, a bloody trail from the ATV tracks where they drug the roadkill deer and staked it to a tree and then had uh, trail cameras around it to see when that lion was coming, right. coming in. Uh, and then, so we worked that one for a long time and we ended up catching them and uh, the lion was coming in at night. I think they were a little frustrated with that. So they went to a night vision scope. And so they kept they kept pulling deer um, down in deer to, to freshen up the bait site. And we had to figure out how we could prove that it was a roadkill deer. So we put a tracker inside of a roadkill deer threw it out on the road and they ended up picking it up and dragging it down there. So we were able to use our telemetry stuff and figure out where exactly they were hunting. And uh, so the lion's coming in at night. So they switch from regular scope to a night vision scope. And then they use the trail cameras around the, the roadkill deer to light it up. So it's a black IR light, right. which you can't see with the naked eye, but through night vision, I mean, it, it lights up like a spotlight. Right. So they could just sit there, and when they'd hear those trail cameras, or, or they could see that red light, 
uh, on one of them flicker and they'd turn the night vision scope on and the mountain lion was right there. It's just, it's, it's cheating. Right. It's not fair chase. And, um, but out of that, you know, after we did the search warrants, um, and we had, you know, a lot of their pictures from their phones and their computers and everything else, we found, you know, nine deer and three lions that were actually illegally killed. Wow. And, and I, I do know, I, I think I sat through, uh, I think you and Jeff were both there when you presented this to the commission and, and the jaws dragging down in the room and you gave us the short version, but the jaws hanging down in the room from the commissioners and the public and other staff and the heads that were shaking is pretty amazing thing. So it is. Yeah. And, you know, even on Facebook, I, I, I think one thing we have to remember is not not everybody's a hunter, right? You know, so we we obviously have some non-hunters on there, and um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say anything that would ever offend those folks because I don't care. You know, if they if they don't hunt, they don't fish. It's not their thing. That's that's fine. But one thing I think that happens to hunters good hunters um, because we have great sportsmen in South Dakota and they do a tremendous job um, supporting and protecting wildlife mm -hmm. and helping conservation officers protect wildlife. And sometimes I think they get a bad rap from some of these non-hunters that just don't understand the whole process. Right. And they start pointing fingers and calling uh, sportsmen poachers because they've, you know, harvested something lawfully and we need hunters, right? To manage our populations, it's hugely important to us. And so I think there should be a really thick line there that distinguishes the difference between uh, what a sportsman, what a hunter is and what a poacher is. Right. And, you know, a poacher is, is somebody that's, going to do anything to kill an animal right. and maybe not use the meat, maybe just shoot something, cut the head off, uh, just take the antlers, shoot something out of season. Right. Um, yeah, that's not hunting. Just, no, no, it, it's disgusting. And, and that's why the Turn In Poachers program works so well, because the vast majority of, of the boots on the ground and, and the folks out there in the field participating in this, uh, whenever they witness something like this, it turns their stomach and they end up doing the right thing and calling it in. Right, right. Good stuff. Um, you know, I think the other thing, uh, how many COs, how many game wardens do we have on the ground right now, Joe? Uh, 80, 81 badge carriers. 81 badge yeah. carriers. Think about how big South Dakota is. Um, think about, you know, Perkins County or Harding County or Meade County or, heck, even Minnehaha County and all the people there, you know, th that's only a couple sets of eyes per county or one and a half sets of eyes per county. So it's pretty important that, that our sportsmen and sportswomen and just, you know, uh, citizens uh, that maybe, like you said, that aren't uh, hunters or anglers, um, you know, just another bunch of sets of eyes, people who care about, the resource and, and can help us out when they can. 
Yeah, hugely important. And and you're right. I mean, if you were to break it down, each conservation officer covers about 1,700 square miles. And there's just there's no way that we can be everywhere at once. And and I hope that I guess it's always been my hope um, and and I've really took it upon myself. And I know all the CEOs I know very well across the state. Um, we understand who we work for. We understand um, who pays for our jobs. Right. And it's the hunters and the anglers. And I think that's something that separates uh, conservation officers from other law enforcement um, professions is, you know, a lot of other law enforcement professions deal primarily with um, bad folks committing crime. Right. But if I were to go out today and uh, and uh, go up to Sheridan Lake or go up to Pactola, I could almost bet you $100, Chris, that I would not find a violation. And the only thing that I would find is uh, a couple of dozen great conversations. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a I never want um, – our constituents to think that we're out there just looking uh, to get you right. because we're not, we depend on you and we want you on our team and we want to be on your team. And the team is to go against the people committing the crimes. Right. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Um, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, like I told you, you know, these always start out to be about a half hour we're going on an hour and it's good stuff. I know I've got enough questions. We could go on it for another hour, but we'll probably save that for another time. But, uh, oh, yeah. people do time, not Jolt want to Joel. listen to me. Thanks for your time, Jolt and Joe. I appreciate it. Say hi to your lovely wife and Charlie and Eddie and Frank's and beans and, <laughs> and uh, try to stay warm. I hope I get to see you soon and uh, we can get out in the field and do something, but, uh, it's, it's good to talk to you and I appreciate your time and, and, uh, stay warm, man. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thanks very much, Chris. Bye. Law enforcement specialist Joe Keaton, everybody. Probably in my car, That's it for this frigid February edition of our podcast. Hope everybody's staying warm. Uh, cool stuff from Joe Keaton, some interesting perspective on a career angle that maybe not a lot of our conservation officers have taken. Joe's super good guy, introspective, like I said, uh, funny. Uh, Franks and Beans is killing me with the dog name stuff, but uh, also cool stuff about what to do when you fall through the ice and uh, some tip stuff too. Uh, what do we got for coming up? Oh, turkey tags. Turkey tags got to be in electronically by next Wednesday, which is like the 17th, I think. Turkey tags and Lake Francis Case paddlefish tags. So uh, make sure you're on that. Also, if you're a college-aged student, person, human being, and uh, looking for summertime employment, uh, come and check out our seasonal stuff. I got seasonal stuff uh, in parks, seasonal jobs in parks across the state. Good opportunity for anybody, not just college students. 
Um, also, people who might be retired or semi-retired, uh, seasonal jobs are pretty cool. Also, volunteer spots, campground hosts, if you're looking to be a happy wanderer this summer, maybe come out and live in one of our campgrounds for a couple months and be a campground host. Free campground spots uh, available for those people, and uh, probably get all the good fishing tips, too. So, uh, stay safe, stay well, stay warm. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody out there. If you are one who loves the candy and the hearts and the chocolates and the flowers and whatnot. But uh, as always, if you've got any ideas, you're listening to this. And got any ideas for stories or guests or you want to be on and you think you can add to our general knockwurst, love to have you. Emailing me at chris.hull at state.sd.us. And until next time... Take care. I've been down blind, just best by without seeing out of me. I've been down blind, just best by without seeing out of me.